For Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart, and my guest today is Lee Pringle. He is the founder and artistic director of the Color of Music Festival, which is devoted to highlighting the impact and historic significance of black composers, black classical composers, and performers on American and world culture. The Color of Music Festivals bring together top black classical musicians for five days of concerts. And uh, Lee, we can talk about where the future of the festival is in just a moment, but uh, welcome to Piedmont Arts. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate you having me. So one of the reasons that uh, we did want to talk to you is that your organization did something kind of interesting recently in that you reissued a poster from 2017. Um, it, it was a festival poster, and it incorporates a raised fist in the design. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you pointed out in your press, material, press materials, it's a symbol of solidarity. And I just... I thought it would be interesting to find out, you know, talk to you about why you decided to do that and, and how, where you think we are in this moment, really, in our country and in classical music even. Thank you for that question, Rachel. Um, you know, when we uh, unveiled the poster, I initially did it with staff. And I'm just going to give you some context on how this was done. I had 60% of the people in the meeting who were African-American or African ancestry, and 40% were Caucasian. Uh, I knew that the poster would have a gasping effect <laughs> because <laughs> most people who would see a butt of a violin that has a fist morphed in it would view it as the solidarity, resistance, and um, togetherness sign that uh, uh, Malone and others did in the Olympics decades ago. And so- That was the Black Panther signal, right? The, sign? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a sign of, uh, of resistance of what was going on in America. And uh, the gold medalist was at the top of the heap and the other two um, gentlemen, one uh, a white uh, gentleman and then another black gentleman, uh, held his fist up as well. And, you know, they caught hell for decades because of that. And so when Kwashi, the uh, artist, Colin Kwashi, um, told me that what he was going to present was going to be bold and was I ready for it? I said, I've only known you to, to design bold statements. So I believe in giving artists the freedom of creating art. And to my astonishment, the older, I would say, uh, African-American members of that committee, I could tell that they were very concerned when they saw the poster. <laughs> the older white folks in that meeting were a little concerned, but I had two young white interns from the College of Charleston's um, Arts Administration program, and they were elated. Now, I want you to think about where we are today, where black and white people are using this fist sign as solidarity. So that tells you that the folks in my generation, I'm 56, and the folks that were older than me, uh, they were a little concerned that we were doing something that would really adversely affect how people perceive the festival. Whereas the young white graduate students at the College of Charleston, they were like, hell yeah, this is true <laughs> art. And I don't think that you should dilute it at all we think it's, it's an enormous statement. So I, I frame it that way to say to you, 
the whole idea of color music was bold. If you think about it, um, never in American history, there's been an organization who utilized the word black in their logo unapologetically and do not apologize for featuring only people of African ancestry on its stage. That in and of itself was the statement I wanted to be made because I was so familiar with how the structure of the League of American Orchestras platform that most orchestras adopt, I wanted people to understand that my ancestry were the very people dating back 401 years ago that built these institutions for them to exclude us, basically. And so going back to the poster, Kwashi can articulate it much better than I can. And perhaps when you air this, you'll have a link to the video where he and um, a graphic designer by the name of Gil Schuler uh, collaborated. Kashi did the artwork, Gil did the actual wording that he uh, put out. So where we are now is the festival was ahead of its time. Mm. And therefore I thought it was a great, a great chance for us to reissue this poster during this Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Yeah, I was I was struck by the fact that it was ahead of its time. And you're describing the reaction of the people in the room when it was unveiled. It also foreshadows this moment. It's, Absolutely. I mean, of course, I don't think the hesitation is there as much with the older, um, the older folks. They've mm -hmm. kind of, we've kind of come out of our, <laughs> our. Uh, Listen, you know. I had I had I had African Americans my age category who were a little worried. Um, because we first started the poster genre, uh, you know, he's a you know, internationally known artist. Uh, Jonathan Green was the first person to donate a poster to the festival. And we've had um, a, someone who just recently had a, a, a significant um, uh, exhibit at one of the historic homes in Charleston by the name of Fletcher uh, Williams Jr. And these artists uh, are, are of African descent, but, you know, they have done some from very unique things when it comes to art. And, and this one I thought, you know, it was ahead of its time. Music and classical music is literally the last glass ceiling for black accomplishments built in a system where racism was the framework of everything that existed. From the first settlers coming to Charleston in 1670, but from the time of Jamestown, um, 1619, you know, this has been the issue for our society. Everybody refers to it as our original sin. We've yet to deal with the fact that there is no statistical data where you can pair black uh, achievements in finance, housing, education, et cetera, where there's not a huge disparity. And classical music is what I say is the last water fountain for, for black classical artists to drink from. It is still very much a white European construct. Yes, it is. And um, well, a couple of things in just a moment, if you could just give us a quick background of, of how long ago you started Color of Music and why. But um, you know, you're talking about the fact that it is sort of the holdout in the art world, I guess, really, in general. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like we are at a point where that may be about to change, maybe. I hope so. We're in our eighth year this October. 
we've had the pleasure of presenting as far north as Pittsburgh, as far west as Houston, Texas. We've been to historic Richmond, Virginia, Atlanta, Columbia, South Carolina, where the Confederate flag came down just you know five years ago after the tragedy of the Emanuel Nine. And I think that because the world of classical music, ballet, and opera was introduced with oppression as a part of it, because if it wasn't African Americans or Africans, it was the peasants, you know, in Great Britain who, you know, provided these, you know, landowners with this massive amount of, of, of land to cultivate and keep them very, very rich and wealthy and you had access if you had land. Well, as it related to people of African ancestry, we actually were taken from our, our homeland. So all of our culture was lost and had to be rediscovered, you know, hundreds of years later. And I often say, if the countries on the continent of Africa had the wherewithal to utilize the church and printed material that churches could bring to the fore and export their religion, then because we all know the continent of Africa is where mankind started, then perhaps classical music would have African notations, not Italian notations. So from the banjo, which was invented by Africans, uh, reinterpreted by um, whites when country music was a black art form, <laughs> and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, people look at country music as a white form. It's the ignorance of our society, the manner in which our schools are cultivating books and you know, parents having the say in what the textbook actually is teaching our children. We come back 401 years later, where most white Americans, I can say, and white people globally are beginning to sit back and realize, my God, how could I have become postgraduate PhD and be so ignorant about something so incredibly easy to understand that there's been a system in place that have kept people of African ancestry. And I would even say women suffer from a lot of the same issues that people, you know, you, you're talking about race, but gender as well, where there's these things that are going on to affect our societies. What do you think are some of the things that um, can be done, especially in the world of classical music, to, to right this situation? You know, I work for a classical radio station. Um, there are orchestras. I'm trying to think of sort of the organizations and institutions that are home to classical music. What What are the things that you would like to see happen in those institutions to address this issue that you have been working on for years? Mm -hmm. The first thing the institutions can do is stop going to people who tell them the same thing. And I've said this in, in, on other interviews, and this is not to say that what the League of American Orchestras, which is really kind of the authority that orchestras who become professional organizations look to for the infrastructure and how things are done. If you go to a League of American Orchestras conference, there are people who are brilliant minds pontificating about things that the persons who make financial decisions are generally not sitting in their conference. Okay, these are the people who write the checks. 
And because no one um, generally of my background are leading artistic decisions, symphonies, ballets, and operas continue to churn out the things that people who have a sum of their life experiences bring to the table. So I'm not badgering those decisions. I'm saying those decisions are made for what you hear, even on your radio station, because many of the persons who would program are not familiar with Wham Grand Still or George Walker and some other noted Black composers, Florence Price, I can go on, Undine Smith Moore, um, Wham Levy Dawson. These are, you know, Black composers uh, that came after Chevalier de Saint George, who was a contemporary of Mozart and, and Haydn, who wrote six operas, was appointed to the Paris Operas. Um, as music director, but divas of the day didn't want him uh, telling them what to do, so they boycotted. Um, but these are all examples of of the, I would say, the seventeen thousand orchestras that are part of the league, and the additional members that make up about two thousand who are not a part that they put on programming. They have to bring people to the table who are different from them because they are you know, Latino composers, you know, there, there are just so many other rich things that the classical music world could absorb. But again, as I said, they keep going to the places, the same places getting the same answers. You can almost bet that when you go look up a program guide for one of those 17,000 orchestras I refer to, they're going to have such a similar masterwork schedule that it's just amazing. So that tells you that there's not a lot of independent thinking. There's a lot of thinking that comes from, well, this is what they've established is what you should be doing if you're an orchestra. And, you know, these orchestras are finding that they're continuing to hemorrhage patrons because the people who used to subscribe to that are slowly dying off. And the younger generations, they're not going to have it. We see what's happening in the streets. So I think that we're at a reckoning that the National Endowment of the Arts, um, the humanities, and all of these huge foundations that have these prescribed methods to give money away have got to start thinking about how to support Black institutions so that our voices can be elevated and be on par. You know, I, I think that you you pointed this out, but the irony is I think a lot of those decisions, you know, and that sameness is driven by, in some respects, by, well, this is how we're going to pay our bills. Um, mm -hmm. it's not the whole reason, but, you know, from, but then you pointed out, well, they're still losing audience. <laughs> so, or, you know, things. And I would, I would say, yeah, I would say not to cut off, cut you off about paying the bills. And the reason that I'm going to push back a little bit on that is because if you think about county, state, and local tax dollars that go in to a part of the development of most orchestras, and they will use community outreach going into low-income areas to get those grants, the bottom line is they are paying their bills for money from people who don't look like them contribute to the, to the pot. So I would also add that they could be building a whole new audience, you know, if they were to say, I'll just use February, which everybody thinks of February as African-American History Month, but those of us who are Black, we say Black History Month, it's every day we live. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a plethora of composers that they could program that would hopefully 
entice and make people of African ancestry interested in seeing a performance of a William Grant Stills Afro-American symphony or George Walker's lyric. I'm just using some examples to say that. So that's respectfully, I push back on the whole thing about them paying their bills because there are other ways to pay your bills. It's how you choose to pay your bills. Sure. Um, Well, speaking of, I guess, programming concerts and things like that, what is what are your plans for the Color of Music Festival? Because, you know, we're in a weird age of COVID. <laughs> have you got have you have you made plans or what are you thinking? We have plans for the fall that we have to put on a perpetual hold because, like any presenting organization, we have to ensure that if those plans can be deployed, that they meet, you know, CDC guidelines and you know, health and human services guidelines to ensure that it is safe, not only for the, commu- for the musicians to congregate and rehearse and perform, but for the patron who enters the hall, that they would be safe. I would venture to say that most of us are going to be finding online platforms to keep top of mind for people who love the type of music that we present. And that will probably be the safe way to go um, until the 2021-2022 season, you know, you know, hoping that something will will come up as a as a treatment that that is 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 that works and perhaps a vaccine. So right now we are formulating plans for uh, you know, live stream concerts and looking for ways to partner with local television to to have those. Um, uh, broadcasts in, in areas. And that would, so in various areas, not just Charleston. Yeah, you know, we have um, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, where we are scheduled to perform. We have Nashville, Tennessee, where we're scheduled to perform. Um, we were actually uh, very close to solidifying a project on the West Coast, and that may still um, happen in some form in the fall. I just don't want to mention the city because we haven't all the agreements haven't been signed yet, but um, Charleston will happen in uh, 2021. But again, it, it may not be a live audience. It may be uh, just the musicians uh, with proper social distancing and meeting those local guidelines uh, if we don't have uh, some type of protocol that it's safe to perform. What's going to happen to the sound if you do perform and you're socially distant and you're all sitting further apart from each other. Is that going to make a difference to how it sounds? Well, you know, we haven't experimented with it yet. And you probably have seen on social media, a lot of folks are doing these uh, Zoom uh, presentations where they bring singers together or they bring instrumentalists together and they mix it. Um, I think that there will be some dilution of of the quality that people want to hear. Um, But we have a a secret process that we're not going to tell anybody until they see it <laughs> to uh, to uh, to make it a little better than what you're you're now experiencing, and we want to try to keep that uh, under the wraps until we're able to deploy it. All right. Well, you'll just have to let us know when you're ready, so that we don't miss it. <laughs> I certainly will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so, just real quickly, where do you see the future? going for organizations like you and for um, Black classical musicians? Is the future bright? I think the future, I think the future is bright. You know, if we can survive um, being abstracted from our native land, 
making the voyage over after being, you know, in dungeons before the Dutch ships came back to the west coast of Africa. If we can survive being quarantined here in the Carolina colony, uh, where 40% of all Africans that came into North America came through Charleston, if we can survive being on plantations for 200 years, the reconstruction period, where we became the majority of legislatures in the South Carolina uh, uh, state legislature, legislature um, and survive Jim Crow and the strife of the 60s uh, civil rights movement and all the progress that we had, a lot of it has been taken away from the courts. I think that we can survive this time, but what it's gonna take is the lip service that people are putting up in statements, these Fortune 500 companies, we hear you, we're gonna view how we do things. I don't want what I call this um, social media advocacy. We want dollars to go to historically black colleges. We want dollars to go to black institutions to help us have some type of parity to the wealth, the ancestors who brought us here got for free for hundreds of years. They were able to pass it down multi-generationally. And I want people to stop telling us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps when we were, as Dr. King says, bootless people and you expected us to have straps on them. So I want the people who are telling us they're with us to show it with their monies. And when we have African-American-led institutions, higher, as higher ed, not going into insolvency and losing accreditations because they don't have billion dollar endowments like the white schools do, then we're in a, a position I think we can say we have definitely overcome. But until then, I'm hearing a lot of talk and not a lot of action. So I guess time will tell. <laughs> time will tell. The next news cycle will tell, <laughs> I guess you could say. Well, that happens about every five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's just pray that that the news cycles don't get people's mind. You know, Americans, we can be easily distracted. And before you know it, we are obsessing about some news story that is so superfluous. But, you know, hey, that's what makes us great. <laughs> Lee Pringle, I really appreciate your time today. And uh, thanks for being on Piedmont Arts. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. Lee Pringle is the founder and artistic director of the Color of Music Festival based in Charleston, which is devoted to highlighting the impact and historical significance of black classical composers and performers on American and world culture. And for Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart.